Esther chapter 6. Esther 6, verse 1. During that night, the king could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found what Mordecai had reported concerning Bikana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who were doorkeepers, that they sought, had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. And the king's servants said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman returned home, mourning, with his head covered. And Haman recounted to Zeresh his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh his wife said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Verse 1, during that night, the king could not sleep. The night is the night of the first banquet. We know from the previous chapter that Esther has a request, a special request of the king, and she prepares a banquet for him and for Haman. Between the first and the second banquets, there's a second one about to happen on this day, uh, which we'll read about in chapter 7. Here, during this night, Haman could not sleep. It doesn't tell us why he could not sleep, but it must have been God. It must have been God who disrupted him and caused him not to be able to sleep. And because he couldn't sleep, he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Because he couldn't sleep, he didn't desire to eat something, to drink something, to take some medicine, to be with one of his wives, or to call in the musicians, or anything like that. Nothing. He didn't ask for any of that. He could have asked for something, 
something besides the book of records, the chronicles, in order for him to occupy his time, to pass the time. He could have brought anything else, but he brought this. And this book of records, we read about this in chapter 2. In chapter 2, when there was a plot to assassinate the king, two of his officials were discovered by Mordecai. Mordecai informed Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. It was investigated, and the two assassins were discovered, and they were caught, and then executed. It says in 2.23, the last verse, Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. The book of the Chronicles, or as it says in chapter 6, verse 1, the book of records, the Chronicles, that is, of all the events throughout the time of the Persian Empire and during the reign of Ahasuerus, records were kept of incidents that occurred in the kingdom. This is also mentioned in chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 2. Specifically, it is a book of chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia, it says. And all the accomplishments and his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? These kingdoms, who at this time were united to defeat their previous enemy, the Babylonians, they kept a book of records. Various kingdoms in the ancient world and even in the modern world, they keep a book of records or a chronicle of all the events that go on, all of the events related to the government, the things that happen. We have record of Babylonian chronicles, Assyrians, the, the kings of Israel and Judah also kept chronicles. We read about them in the book of Kings and Chronicles. The book of Chronicles is a record book of the major kings or all the kings of the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom, a record of what happened during the reign. Well, this is the kind of book that he wanted presented before him. Now, you can imagine of all the events throughout his reign so far and all the events that have happened throughout the Persian Empire from 539, at least 539 B.C. onward to 332 B.C. when Greece defeated the Persians, that up until this point, which was about 480 B.C., from 539 to 480, there would have been many events that would have been recorded. There are many things that happened. Yet notice in verse 2 where they happened to read. And it was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Throughout the night, it doesn't tell us how long he tossed and turned and could not sleep before he called for this book of records, the Chronicles, to be brought. It doesn't tell us, but he does get to a point, or the reader of the king does get to a point where this report is, is recorded of how Bigthana and Teresh, two of the eunuchs, who were doorkeepers, wanted to lay hands on the king, wanted to assassinate him. They happened to come to this point. Now, in human events, they happened to come to it, but according to divine appointment, it happened strategically. God ordained that they would come to this point. Now, when they did come to this point, the king noticed something. 
there was something missing in the record. And this is what happens in verse 3. And the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? What kind of reward did he get for doing this? Because it wasn't recorded in the book. Somehow that was overlooked. Somehow the king didn't issue a reward. Somehow somebody didn't record a reward. Or something, something is amiss, and the king knows that. So he asked the question, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? His officials are around him. They're helping him. They're reading the book to him. And, and he asks, What's been done? The king's servants who attended him, who are right there, who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. They would have known. It was recent enough in history that they would have known just a, a few years before. And they, they said, nothing's been done. Mordecai, he's still doing his official duty there in the court. He has been promoted. There's been nothing, no kind of celebration. Nothing has been done on behalf of Mordecai. They say nothing. They tell the truth, thankfully. And verse 4, so the king said, who is in the court? For some reason, he knows somebody has come to the court. Somebody has come early in the morning. It must have been at least dawn. It must have been that early in the morning because the previous night when Haman went home, Zeresh and his friends, his wise men said, make a gallows and then in the morning go to the king, go to Mordecai and ask him for Mordecai's execution. So he comes early in order to make sure that that happens. And the king, in some way, he knows that somebody is there, but he wants to make sure and find out who's there. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. He had just arrived and wanted to request Mordecai's head. He wanted Mordecai to be killed. This is his intention. Haman's intention is to destroy Mordecai. That's clearly the case. Verse 5, And the king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. Haman is the number two man in the kingdom, the right-hand man of the king. There are others who are princes of the Persian Empire, seven of them, but Haman is even above them and right next to the king in terms of authority and stature and position. So naturally, if the, he hears Haman is there, I've, I've, got an, I've got a question. Let me just consult this one who's number two. That would be natural for him to do it. And that's what he does. Let him come in. I have a question for him. That's what's in his head. And so Haman doesn't know that yet. Verse 6, so Haman came in and the king said to him, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? Notice that the king, though he asked this question about whom to honor and what to do to honor this man, he doesn't name the man. I don't think the king knows anything about the plot, and I don't think the king knows anything that Haman is about to come and ask for the life of Mordecai. The king doesn't know any of that. The king is asking a blanket question. Sometimes that, is, that happens. It happens throughout history. It happens in our own life, even among friends. 
they'll, uh, one friend will, may, may ask another friend a blanket question just to have it as, as blanket and, and clear as possible so that the friend can give a straightforward, open, transparent answer without any bias towards an individual. And this is what happens here. The king does that. I just want you to tell me what's on your mind when I ask you this question. And notice what happens. And Haman said to himself, Haman said to himself, literally, Haman said in his heart. What he said in his heart means he's thinking. He's thinking about how to answer and what to answer. And this is what's on his mind. Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? I am number two. Who would he want to honor but me? He hasn't given any indication that he wants to elevate any other official in the kingdom. I haven't heard anything the last few days. I don't know. He must want to honor me. That's what's in Haman's mind. He's full of pride. He can't imagine there being anybody else who would deserve an elevated status in the kingdom but himself. That's how full of uh, arrogance, pride, hubris he, he is. We'll also note here in verse 6, there are several incidents in this chapter. The, the sleep, where they find on the pages of the Chronicles about Mordecai, and even here, this note in verse 6, Haman said to himself, how would these things happen or how would these things be, be recorded unless they were divinely known, divinely known and then divinely recorded? Who else would know throughout all history what was in Haman's mind at this point? He didn't have very much time to tell anybody else. We'll see later in, in this chapter and in chapter 7. It has to be by divine inspiration that the Holy Spirit has these words recorded here and all of these incidents recorded because all of it's happening because of God's providence. Then, Haman thinks these things. And verse 7, Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn. A royal robe which the king has worn. This would be extra special because only the king would wear it. Anybody else who might want to wear the king's robe might be indicating that he wants to usurp authority, that he wants to overthrow the kingdom, that he is uh, an insurrectionist or something, that he thinks he himself is a king or should be king. That's the same with all of these other qualities. The horse on which the king has ridden only the king has, not anybody else, only the king. And on whose head a royal crown has been placed. Only the king would have the royal crown, nobody else. No, none of the other officials and, and none of the other people in the kingdom, any of the commoners in the kingdom. Nobody would have had any of this. So it would be extra special to have this honor to be associated so closely with the king and have a privilege that nobody else has ever had to wear these things and to ride on the king's horse. And verse 9, Let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. 
Let the robe and the horse be handed over to someone, one of the king's most noble princes, and let that noble prince do all of this, array the man, prepare the horse, put him on the horse, and then lead him. Lead the procession so that people throughout the city, many, many people can see with their own eyes that King Ahasuerus really wants to honor this man. And he has to say, the one who leads this procession has to say to all the people, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Now I know it doesn't tell us how many times this had to be said, but it must have had to be said more than once, otherwise just one audience would have heard it. Either they had a banner with this on it, and he occasionally said it, or he was saying it constantly, maybe also with a banner, with these words. And this is the setup. This is what Haman wants done, and he wants it done to himself. Talk about audacity. This is the way he is. Verse 10. It turns on him. Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said. It's your idea. It's brilliant. It's your idea. And do so for Mordecai the Jew. And do so. Notice, that's a, a command, an imperative. Do so. You do so. Do so for Mordecai the Jew. The king happens to mention the ethnicity of Mordecai. The ethnicity of Mordecai is that that was uh, loathed by Haman. He didn't like it at all. He hated Mordecai and all the Jews. He had called for the issuance of a decree earlier in the book. And Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate, he's right there. Hurry up and go do that now. Immediately, quickly, go do it. And in case Haman or anybody would want to alleviate any of, the, of these honors to shortchange Mordecai, he says, do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. Don't, don't go around, don't cut corners, do everything you just said. You do it, and you do everything that you just said. Remember, the king doesn't know anything about Haman's intentions against Mordecai. He doesn't know any of this. All of this is happening through human events divinely orchestrated. This is how it's happening. God is in control of all of this. Do you think Haman would dare to disobey the king? Absolutely not. Verse 11. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. He, arrayed, he prepared the robe, the horse, and arrayed Mordecai and led the procession through the city square and proclaimed before him this very thing. Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. All this while, Mordecai would not give homage and bow down before Haman. And now it's turned upside down. Now Haman has to give honor to Mordecai. 
12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. Later that same day, he returned to the king's gate to do his duties. But Haman hurried home, mourning, with his head covered. He rushed home, crying, weeping, and he covered his head. He's humiliated. He's, he's humiliated and grieving over this turn of circumstances. He could not imagine that this would ever happen to him. He was so blinded by his pride, he could not imagine that there was a pit in front of him and he was about to fall into it. And the pit was something he ordered to be dug out. But now it's happened. And now that it has happened, he's rushing home because he needs to be consoled by his wife and friends. And he's mourning and he covers his head in shame and humiliation. At his house, verse 13, Haman recounted to Zeresh's wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, he recounts it all to, to his wife and friends who are also called his wise men. These friends or wise men would have been prognosticators, uh, politicians, men who understood the time, priests, the, the, the ones who dealt with uh, horoscopes and, and astrology, things like that. They would have been what in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2 calls magi. Or in the book of, of Exodus, Exodus 7, the ones that were the counselors of Pharaoh, they were called magicians or sorcerers. So these religious people who understand the times and give counsel to the king on how he can orchestrate things and work out everything for the betterment of his kingdom so he can prosper and he can have a long life. All of these officials, these princes, they have a collection, some group that give him advice. And that's who gave him this advice. He speaks to his wife and his friends, and then it says, his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said. Apparently, this idea or this thought first arose with the wise men who were attuned to the culture and attuned to all of the events and the happenings of the kingdom. And Zeresh agrees with them. They all say, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. If Mordecai, this one before whom you have begun to fall, they see here an omen, a portend of negative events about to happen. It's already happened and more events are about to happen. They can tell that this could not happen accidentally. All of this, they could tell it was not an accident. The gods must somehow be involved and maybe Mordecai's God is involved because they say Mordecai of Jewish origin. They know some things about the God of Israel. They know. They would have known by various means. For example, Daniel was a prophet. 
And he was a prophet who lived a couple of decades before these events. He was a prophet, a Jewish man, a prophet in the court of the king of Persia, in Cyrus and in Darius' reign, in the reign of both of those kings, which were predecessors of Ahasuerus. It's not uncommon or unthinkable that people who were not of Jewish origin would know something about the Jewish religion and about the Jewish scriptures. They would have had access to them. And here, they know what God has said to some extent in the Old Testament. They say, you will not overcome him. It won't happen. You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Surely fall. It will absolutely, certainly happen. You won't overcome, and you're going to fall. There's nothing you can do. You have made yourself an enemy of God. The one who blesses you, I will bless, and the one who curses you, I will curse, Genesis 12, 3. And they knew what happened in Daniel's case. Daniel's three friends were spared from the fire. Daniel himself was spared from the lion's den. And Daniel's enemies were thrown into the lion's den. It, the reversal of circumstances occurred on them. In the same way, they know. They know something. It doesn't tell us what they know, but they do know something about the God of Israel, the, the God of the Old Testament. They do. And this is what they declare. 14. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. While they're discussing all this, it doesn't seem like they got very far. And while they were still talking, the eunuchs arrived and quickly brought Haman to the banquet. And this second banquet we'll read about in the next chapter. This is when Esther announces her dilemma the king is stunned, and then the king orders for Haman's execution. Okay, a few lessons we can learn from this chapter. One lesson is that the, there is a divine appointment of human events. We saw here that the sleep or loss of sleep of the king, the book and where they read in the book, the things that Haman did at the right time and when, when he came and presented himself to the king at the right time and what was in his mind, what came out of his mouth and then the king's reaction to it all. He thought it was a brilliant idea. All of this could not and did not happen by accident. It did not happen by chance. We see a few examples of this. Genesis chapter 2. First, in regards to sleep. Genesis chapter 2. Remember, Adam was created. The animals were brought before him, and Adam discovered that there was not found a helper suitable for him. We know that God put him to sleep, created the woman, and brought the woman to the man. Genesis 2.21 Notice carefully. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he, God, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. 
It says clearly in 2.21 that God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. God caused the deep sleep to fall upon him. By implication, if God can cause a deep sleep, God can also withhold any sleep or give you trouble sleep or anything else. He can do one or the other. Another example, Genesis 15. Genesis 15. This is to Abraham. Genesis 15 and verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Then God presents his word to Abram in the sleep, in the deep sleep. When it says a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, it's not implying that it was an accidental fall. One other thing you'll notice in Genesis 2.21, it says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. God caused it to fall upon the man. The same in Genesis 15, though it doesn't say God explicitly, it's there implicitly. A deep sleep fell upon Abram. Sometimes the Bible speaks of God in a roundabout way. For example, when Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 7, 7, he said, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. When the Bible says it that way, in a roundabout way, ask and it shall be given to you. If it's going to be given to you, who's the one giving it to you? God. And when he says, knock and it shall be opened to you, well, who's going to open the door? It's going to be opened for us. We're not the ones who are forcing the door to be opened. It shall be opened to you means God is the the one who's acting on our behalf. And that's what I mean by the implicit nature of what it says in Genesis 15, 12. But a little more explicitly than that, Genesis 15, we'll go to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, right before Esther. Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah is also in a predicament. He's before the king. He's an official of the king, a different king, later in the Persian Empire, King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah hears about all of the problems in Judea, specifically about the fact that the wall of Jerusalem was still in rubbles. No one had rebuilt it yet. He hears about it, and it troubles him. So he gathers up courage after he prays. He gathers up courage, and he's able to present his request to the king. And notice, in Nehemiah chapter 2, what these verses say about God's involvement in all of these circumstances in the life of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 2, verse 8. And a letter to Asaph, the king... The, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the for, fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. Th- this is a part of what he wants. And he says, And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. He was granted that because the good hand of God was on him. Chapter 2, verse 12. Verse 12, And I arose in the night, 
I and a few men with me, I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was writing. Nehemiah acknowledges that God put thoughts into his mind about what to do. 2.18, verse 18. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words, which he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. He explains to the people that God's hand was on him favorably and the king's words were also in harmony with all that needed to be done because God made it happen that way for the king to give them favor. And also verse 20. Verse 20, So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. He's addressing this to his enemies, and he's confident that God will give them success. But he's not going to give them success unless they arise and build, as it says in verse 18. So they put their hands to the good work. They work with their hands, but God will give them success. He will ensure that it happens. Acts chapter 16. Acts 16. Acts 16, 25. Paul and Silas had been persecuted, mistreated, uh, beaten, and thrown into prison. And while they're in prison, they are bound, they are wounded. But verse 25 says, But about midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were unfastened. Do you think that when they are praying and singing, and the prisoners are listening, that this earthquake that happened at that time happened without God's intervention? No way. Absolutely not. It also says that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. What would the earthquake have to do with opening all the doors, making sure that every door was opened and that every chain was unfastened? That had to be God. It had to be God at work through natural and human events. God at work. So when we read about what happened in, in Esther chapter 6 and throughout the book, and for that matter, anywhere in the Bible or anywhere in our own Christian life, we do acknowledge human events, but we must not make those human events devoid of divine providence. God is at work in everything that happens. A second lesson we can learn is that these events can teach us and should teach us how to follow good examples and how to shun bad and evil examples. Whenever the Bible has a, a good model, we ought to emulate the good model. And whenever the Bible give, gives us, presents to us an evil man 
or evil circumstances, it will also and also should teach us lessons about what evil is and our relationship to evil, that we should avoid it. Romans chapter 4. Romans 4. This is a good example. Romans 4, 22. Throughout this chapter, the Apostle has been explaining how Abraham, especially, was justified by faith, not by works. And he gets to verse 22. Romans 4, 22, he says, Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness, to Abraham as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Verse 23, why is it written in the scriptures, Genesis 15, 6, it was reckoned to him as righteousness, or the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness? Why is it recorded there? It's recorded there, according to this verse, that it's not there just for his sake, it's there for our sake. So that we also might be reckoned righteous, that we also might emulate the faith of Abraham. It's there for our benefit. Not only his, and not only for his contemporaries, or just the next generation after him, for just for Isaac's benefit. No. It's for all of our benefit throughout history. Chapter 15, Romans 15, verse 4. 15, 4. 15, 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Our instruction. That through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Whatever was written in earlier times... He's not talking about apostolic times. He's talking about prophetic times, the Old Testament. Whatever was written in the Old Testament was written for us, to teach us, for our instruction. Why? That through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. There's need of perseverance. There's need of encouragement. There's need of hope. And all of this comes through the Scriptures, by knowing the Scriptures. And in this case how the, the saints of the Old Testament went through sufferings and afflictions, they persevered because they had hope set before them. They, they re remained encouraged because they kept hope set before them, eternal hope, the gospel before them. Okay, those are good examples. Now let's look at a few evil ones. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10. verse 6. 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now, these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. These things happen as examples for us. Examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. The people of the past craved evil and they were punished for it. We shouldn't do the same. Then he gives us examples. Verse 7. And do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. 
nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and twenty-three thousand fell in one day, nor let us try or tempt the Lord or tempt Christ, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. All of these are evil examples of idolatry and immorality. 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. They're there as an example, and all of these are evil ones, for our instruction, to teach us. Why do we need to be taught? Somebody might say, why do we need to be taught? Aren't we better than the people of Israel? Aren't we better than the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Look at verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You think you're better than they are? Don't you realize you have a human nature just like like they have had a human nature? We're all human. We're all from Adam and Eve. So how can we think we're better than they were? But then he encourages us. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Whatever temptations we undergo are common to man, not just common to Jews, but also Gentiles. It's not just common to Gentiles, but also to Jews. Not just to men, but also to women. Not just to kings, but also to commoners. Not just to bakers, but also court officials. It happens to everybody because we're all human, common to man. But God's faithful. Remember, He's faithful and He won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able, able with God's help to overcome. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. One more verse and that will be in Jude. Jude Seven. When we think about these good and bad examples, are we just talking about morality and how to lead a good life? Or does it have to do with more than just this life when we look at these good and evil examples? Let's see what Jude says in Jude 7. Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, they behaved wickedly. They went into gross immorality. Others go into gross immorality. They chase strange flesh. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, we have the English word sodomite from this incident because men wanted to be with men instead of men with women in marriage. Men wanted to be with men and that's a gross immorality and a pursuit of strange flesh. Because It's strange because God has not given it to us to do it that way. Well, we're talking about immorality, unethical behavior, sexual behavior, unethical. Why is that recorded there? Why do we read about it in Genesis 18 and 19 and other places throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament like here? 
why does the Bible keep bringing up Sodom and Gomorrah? He tells us here that they are exhibited as an example. They are a demonstration, an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Was their sin of sodomy wrong and evil? Yes. Were they supposed to stop it? Yes. Were they supposed to repent and turn to the Christ in the gospel? Yes. They were supposed to do all that. But what if they didn't? What happened? What does it say? They underwent, they were undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. When God rained fire and brimstone, fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah, it wasn't just to get rid of them physically, but to show that they did not want to pursue a godly, spiritual, eternal life, and it manifested itself in their behavior. So when they were destroyed, they were destroyed eternally. Not just physically, but eternally. They underwent the punishment of eternal fire. When we read about the virtues and the vices in the book of Esther or any other place in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we're not reading just about how to be, live an ethical life and live to be 70 or 80 years old. We're reading about spiritual life, eternal life, godliness, holiness, knowledge of God, true knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. And if we have that, how it benefits us ultimately to eternal life or punishes us in eternal perdition. Then one more point to make, one more lesson. And that is that God turns arrogance into humiliation. God turns arrogance into humiliation and the reverse is true. God turns humility into exaltation. Arrogance is humiliated and then humility, true, godly, sincere humility is elevated. This is what God does. We know that that's what he does in the book of Esther. Let's see some other examples of God doing so in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs 11. Proverbs 11 and verse 2. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Pride brings dishonor. Humility equates to wisdom. Chapter 16. Proverbs 16, 18. 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Pride is before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. 18, verse 12. Proverbs 18, 12. 18, 12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Destruction is for those who are haughty, and humility goes before honor. If one has haughtiness, then destruction awaits him. If one has humility, then honor awaits him. 29.23, Proverbs 29.23.
A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. And also a couple from Luke. Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, 11, Jesus said, For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And 18, 14. Luke 18, 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. In, in this case, the Pharisee exalted himself with his own works, his self-righteousness. He exalted himself, and he's warning us by saying the Pharisee will be humbled one day. But on the other hand, the tax collector who humbled himself, acknowledged his sin before God, humbled himself, he's the one that will be exalted one day. He will have honor and glory on the day of judgment. All right. These are some lessons for us to learn. Okay, time for questions and comments.